The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to be together as we now open God's Word. And for all those who are watching on the live stream, we're welcoming you as well. Keep your Bibles open as we're in 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Would you join me now as we ask the Lord for help as we go to Him in prayer? Father in heaven, we are longing to behold the work, the majesty, and the beauty of Christ and all, of, all that that means for us this morning. So open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly. Enliven our hearts to love Jesus more fully. Renew our minds to ponder the beauty of Christ and ignite our affections for him. Don't allow any person to leave this morning unchanged by Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to cut right to the chase and look at this difficult passage. Martin Luther said this about this text. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. This is perhaps one of the most complicated and difficult texts in the Bible. One commentator says, if you comb through all the different options for how to interpret all the different parts of this text, you can get about 180 explanations for it. So this is a good opportunity to consider how do we approach difficult texts when we come to them in the Bible? One temptation would be to skip over them. And we don't do that because we know that this is the pure spiritual milk of the word, inspired and breathed out by God, useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. So what we want to do this morning is squeeze out every spiritual nourishment that we can from this text. And I think there's much here for our spiritual edification this morning. Let me just remind us where we are at. Last week, we looked at verses 13 to 17, where Peter was making the argument that if you suffer unjustly, you are blessed. And not only are you blessed, you're to have a fearless fear of God and to give a defense for the hope, for the faith that lies within you. And now Peter argues, turns to the example of Christ. Jesus also endured as the pathway towards glory. So don't fear because Jesus also likewise suffered. This morning's message is mainly a word of encouragement and reassurance for believers who are feeling downtrodden questioning, why am I suffering? The main point this morning is do not fear suffering because like Jesus, suffering is the pathway to victory and glory. Don't fear suffering because Jesus also suffered. He suffered more than anyone else in all of the world and yet it was the pathway to victory and to glory. And we can rest in our victorious and suffering Savior this morning. And Peter gives this word of encouragement because he wants his readers to stand firm in the true grace of God. 
Don't be shaken. Let your roots go deeper and deeper so that when the winds of persecution blow, you will not be toppled. It's not as though Peter hears of the persecution going on in the Greco-Roman world and says, oh dear, I've never seen that before. I'm so worried for you. You should be panicked. He doesn't say that. He says, this is precisely what Jesus himself experienced. This is precisely what Jesus said would happen. And this is precisely what believers before you have experienced. This is the narrow road of following Jesus, is to endure suffering. So our plan is to look at this passage in three parts. Verse 18 is the suffering of the Savior. Verses 19 to 21 is the victory of the Savior. And then verse 22 is the ascension of the Savior. We're going to look at the suffering, victory, and ascension. So turn with me in your Bibles and look with me at 1 Peter 3, 18. It says again, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 18 is this beautiful and glorious encapsulation and summary of the gospel message for us. Do you see that? Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the reason he writes that is he doesn't want the believers to fear. Don't fear. Be reminded of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Now, this is not the first time where Peter's talked about Christ's suffering. He addressed this back in 1 Peter 2.21 when he was addressing slaves. It says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. But here, Peter's highlighting something different than that. This is not mainly about follow in the footsteps of Jesus, but this is rest in what he's accomplished. Christ's suffering is different than all other suffering that has ever come before. That's what he's highlighting here. We see this, that Jesus' death was unique and definitive. We see this phrase, once for sins. This is in sharp contrast to the ongoing sacrifices that would have to be brought by the nation of Israel to the temple, the sacrifice of bulls and goats and doves again and again and again and again, and you get the picture. And then Jesus finally comes on the scene and says, it's finished, it's enough, no more blood. You're not ransomed by gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Christ. So he offered his own blood once for sins. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ came, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus' singular sacrifice is unique, it's decisive, it's definitive, because it would save sinners. It would wash them clean. The next phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, points to how Jesus' death is vicarious and substitutionary. Jesus is the righteous one. 
He's sinless. And so he doesn't suffer like everyone else suffers. Everyone else suffers as a sinner. But Jesus, as the sinless one, takes our place. So he doesn't suffer for his own sins, but he suffers for the sins of all those who would trust in him. He was crucified for us. And this is good news for Peter's readers this morning as they're hearing this. And good news for us this morning because God has come in the person of Jesus to die, to provide forgiveness of sins, to bring us to God. We see that. To bring us to God. For what reason? So that we would not fear because they were worried. We're being punished. Hostility is rising. Persecution continues to come. Is this punishment from God? Does God see us? Is he even here? And Peter says, don't worry. Don't fear. Look what he's accomplished on your behalf. His sacrifice declares it's finished once for all. Not only does God bring us to him, Jesus' purpose in his death and suffering was to bring us to God, but then it says this phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What does that mean? The use of that, being made alive in the spirit, isn't just referencing Jesus' kind of human spirit between his death and resurrection, but rather it's pointing to his resurrection itself. That though Jesus died in the flesh, he rose again. He was resurrected by his father, raised from the dead by the spirit so that he might redeem sinners. The resurrection is what all of our hope and faith rests upon. Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's what Peter's highlighting here, that he was in fact raised from the dead. He was vindicated. I heard this illustration once by another pastor it goes like this. Imagine that you're one of six boys in your family. And one day, five of you sneak out of your rooms, ride your bikes to the grocery store, steal fireworks and lighters, and come home and start blowing stuff up in your driveway. You light the firecrackers with mom and dad just inside the house. And so soon your parents come out and the five of you are in big trouble. But just then, your older brother, who has been inside doing his homework, comes to your defense and offers to be punished in your place, even though he has no part of your crime. So mom and dad send him to his room and make clear that though the five of you are guilty, your older brother is innocent, he will pay for your sin and merit your forgiveness by going to his room. Now, as long as your big brother is in his room, you feel as though you're not yet cleared for your crime. Until the door opens and your big brother emerges, you sense that the punishment is still taking place. You don't know if this little switcheroo is actually going to work. But once the big brother is set free, you rejoice because now you know that your penalty has been paid because mom and dad have nothing against you. The empty room indicates the satisfaction of parental justice. That's what Peter's highlighting. The empty tomb points to divine justice, that God was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. Not only is he vindicated, he's risen again from the dead in order that all that he said, all that he did would be in fact true. Jesus' resurrection confirms that his death was sufficient for our sins. It worked. And Peter retells this gospel 
to remind his readers that you're truly forgiven. You don't have to worry. You do not have to live in fear. And so this morning, for many who are struggling and hurting, perhaps even on the receiving end of maligning or slander in the workplace and among relatives, this passage reminds us that death does not get the final word. Death does not get ultimate, lasting, decisive victory. Death has no lasting sting. Jesus raises up all of his children from the dead because he himself has gone before us. So you can rest in the suffering Savior this morning. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Whatever hardships or trials that you might be facing this morning, whatever you're experiencing that is difficult in your life, Peter gives this summary of the gospel, not just so this is the way that you might be saved, but so that you might not fear because you see that punishment, suffering from the world is not punishment from God. God is on your side. Who can possibly be against you when God is for you? Look what he's done. The righteous for the unrighteous so that you might be brought to God. And he was resurrected so that all that he said, all that he accomplished is in fact true. We can rest in the suffering Savior. Now look with me at verses 19 to 21. When we transition to the victory of the Savior, it continues and says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we get to the tricky and difficult part of the passage, and I think there are three kind of main questions, and if we can answer these main three, it can kind of help us understand this passage. The first is, who are the spirits in prison in verse 19 that were proclaimed to? The second is, how is Noah and the ark relevant to this whole argument that Peter is making? And the third is then, now what does baptism have to do with all this, and how does baptism save us? To answer these questions, we kind of have to understand the passage as a whole. I think the main difficulty lies in how we understand proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And how we understand that phrase sort of trickles down and helps us understand the rest of the passage. And I think there are four main options. I know I mentioned 180, but we're only going to look at four. And I think these are the four main ones. And I'm going to argue for the fourth, which I think is the most likely and the ones most commentators hold. The first view, which is, I think, a heretical view, is that Jesus Christ descended into hell to provide an additional offer of salvation to those who perished in the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. Now, the, some take 1 Peter 4, 6, which is in our passage for next week, where it says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead to mean that Jesus offers a second chance to those who have died. And we can rule this out almost immediately because the scriptures just don't speak that way. There is no second chance of salvation. There's no second offer of salvation in hell. And this would not make Peter's letter at all make sense. He's calling them to persevere in the face of all that's coming. You have to stand firm. 
The second view is an ancient view that suggests that, suggests that Jesus descended to the place of the dead, like Sheol, between his crucifixion and resurrection to liberate Old Testament saints who had died. So this is a complicated view, but people are trying to answer the question of when people die in the Old Testament before Christ has come, where do they go? And they hypothesize that when people die, they go to this place called Sheol, and there's a place for the righteous, there's a place for the evil, and then Jesus came and liberated all of those between his death and resurrection. This is, there, there's a number of reasons why I don't think this is likely, but one of the reasons is when it uses the word prison, this proclaim to the spirits in prison, prison is nowhere used in the Bible to, replace, to refer to the place of the dead. So I think this is an unlikely view. The third view suggests that Christ's spirit preached through Noah during the days of Noah to those who perished in the flood. So this suggests that as Noah is building the ark, people are coming and says, what's up with the big boat? in the middle of the desert. And he says, well, God's judgment is coming. He's going to bring a worldwide flood. You ought to repent and look to God and trust him. And so the Holy Spirit is enabling Noah to preach good news to those people, and they're not turning. They're disobeying, though God is patient, because it took Noah years to build that ark. And so the spirits in prison then, in this view, refer to humans in the time of Noah who were ensnared in sin in that time. And this view is held by a number of biblical scholars. The fourth view, which I think is the most likely, is this, that Jesus declares his victory to fallen, evil, demonic powers who were disobedient during the days of Noah. And so following his resurrection, he ascends to take his rightful place in heaven as the ruler of all. And so in this view, the spirits in prison refer to demonic powers Angels, evil angels, demons that disobeyed God in the days of Noah. So where, where did that happen? Noah 6 verses 1 through 4 speaks of the sons of God, which many take to be angels, and then the daughters of man. They took the daughters of man to be their wives, and they had intimate relations. And this displeased God. It was sinful, and it was part of the worldwide corruption of the world in the days of Noah. And so these angels were cast into prison and judged. Now I'm going to give four reasons why I think that is. The first is in verse 19 where it says he went. And it's the same participle that's used later in verse 22 where it says Jesus has gone into heaven. And so that seems to point to that Jesus does in fact go somewhere, changes locations. And that wouldn't make sense if he was just preaching through the Spirit through Noah. The second is in reference to spirits in verse 19. This most likely refers to angelic beings more than humans because almost without exception, when it's used in the plural, it's referring to angelic beings, either angels or demons. And the word prison never refers to a place for humans after death, like Sheol or Hades. Prison is either used as a physical place, like Peter and Paul were thrown into prison, a physical place, or a spiritual place of punishment for angelic beings, demons, Satan. Revelation 27 says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Third reason is there's two kind of parallel passages 
one in 2 Peter 2.4 and one in Jude 6 that also speak about a similar reality that took place. So 2 Peter 2.4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Chains of gloomy darkness, sounds like prison, to be kept until the judgment. So these are angels that are cast into a place with chains of gloomy darkness. Now Jude 6 says similarly, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, we think referencing Genesis 6, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So both of these passages speak of fallen angels, demonic beings who disobeyed God in the days of Noah. And then lastly is this use of the word proclaimed or preached. It hangs us up because many, many times we think, when we think of preaching, we think of preaching the gospel. But rather it's a declaration or a proclamation of Jesus' victory over the demonic powers. So, How do we all put that together? This fourth view ultimately emphasizes that Jesus is victorious over every single demonic power. That as he died and as he was resurrected, he now is victorious. Because as you imagine, what happened on Jesus' road to Calvary? Satan entered into Judas, he betrayed Jesus. And then he was brought before a courtroom then he was crucified, and then he died. And what was happening in the demonic realm? They think, we've won. We did it. We've killed the Son of God. We will inherit the world because we've killed Jesus. We've killed God himself. And then Jesus, after three days, rises again from the dead to take his rightful place so that he now declares you're wrong. I'm victorious. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is victorious over every rival power. He subjected them under his feet so that Jesus is the one who is victorious. He rules and reigns and stands at his father's side. He actually sits at his father's side. So though the battle still rages with demonic powers, the war has decisively been decided. Jesus wins. So the question then is, well, what does Noah have to do with this? Well, it was in the days of Noah where these humans and fallen angelic beings sinned against God in Genesis 6, and yet God showed patience in those days, not bringing immediate and swift judgment. Even for that corrupt generation, there was years between when God gave the command and when Noah finished the ark and when the floodwaters came. So Peter cites Noah as an illustration like this. Do not worry, saying this to Peter's readers, if you're a small minority, exiles and sojourners in a place where the whole generation is against you, where you feel like your backs are against the wall, you're marginalized because God saved Noah and he was one man in the midst of an entire generation that was wicked and evil and corrupt and God saved Noah and seven others, his wife, his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws so that they would be saved. And he brought them through judgment waters because they were hidden in the ark. 
And they went through these judgment waters. And in the same way, Israel goes through judgment waters. When they crossed through the Red Sea, those waters swarmed in, covered Egypt. They brought judgment to Egypt decisively. And yet Israel emerged on the other side unscathed, blessed. And in that same way, he now points to baptism. These are judgment waters where every believer goes down into the water. And if you stay down under the water long enough, you die. But you reemerge with Christ. And so baptism now signifies all of those other realities. Noah in the ark, Israel through the Red Sea. Those are echoes of this greater reality that's now symbolized and pictured in baptism that we die with Jesus and then we rise again. It's like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Baptism is a picture of dying with Jesus and then rising again. So now, it begs the question, How does baptism now save you? It says, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter is keen to avoid misunderstanding. So right after he said baptism saves you, he says, not as as a removal of dirt from the body. So water only removes dirt. The reason we get baptized is not because we can wash away our sins physically. It's not because we need a bath. I don't want you to understand this mystically or mechanically, but rather baptism is a sign and symbol. It signifies what's really happened spiritually, that your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And so when you get baptized, it's a portraying of the very reality that's taken place in our hearts. That's why every time we baptize someone up here, what's the very first question that we ask? Are you now trusting In Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and all of his promises to you, including eternal life. Because that's what saves. Jesus, faith in Jesus is what saves. And that's why he says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is that public statement saying, I trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. For those of you who are single, if you somehow kind of sneakily sneak a ring onto the finger of a significant, not a significant, someone you want to be your significant other, it doesn't mean you're married, right? Just because a ring's there or just because I take my ring off doesn't mean that I'm no longer married to my wife. The ring signifies the greater reality, which is that I made a covenant with my wife to live with her forever. And in that same way, baptism signifies the very reality that we have died with Jesus. We've gone through floodwaters and then we live again with Christ. We've been raised with him. So the application for us in this is that as sojourners and exiles, don't fear. Don't fear, even if the entire generation is evil and corrupt and against you. Look what happened with Noah. God rescued him through judgment waters because they hid in the ark. And for all those who now hide in Jesus Christ, you too can come through judgment waters because you've died with Christ and you've been raised again with him. This picture of Noah and his family 
is being saved through judgment, and we too are saved through judgment with Christ. He was judged, and then we rise again with him. Believers this morning, you can rest in the victorious Savior who has defeated his enemies, conquered death itself, rescued his people from the grip of death and judgment. Baptism reminds us of this reality. It's said that when Martin Luther would battle, kind of a spiritual battle, he would say, I'm baptized, I'm baptized. Not because he's pointing to that kind of tradition, but rather, I'm hidden with Christ. I've died with Jesus, and I've been raised again to new life. Now, turn with me to verse 22. We've looked at the suffering of the Savior, the victory of the Savior, and now we look at the ascension of the Savior. 1 Peter 3.22, it continues and says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven is an, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. This final verse highlights again Jesus' victory. He is in heaven. He has overcome sin and death and Satan himself. He's been vindicated by his father and he now sits at his right hand. Where it says powers, angels, and authorities, all of those are referencing the demonic realm. They're not referencing anything else. It's, it's to say that Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of the Father, and every rival power that you can possibly think of has been subjected to his authority under his feet. Now, where it says, is at the right hand, is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus applies this to himself, where David's Lord sits at the right hand of Yahweh and rules and reigns. And then it shows up throughout the New Testament as well. Christ is the suffering Savior. He's the victorious Savior. But now he is the ascended Savior who rules and reigns from on high. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. All other powers, all rival powers are in submission to him. Why is this significant? Because the trials and the persecutions that God's people face are not because God is somehow powerless. It's not because he's punishing us. A sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from God's ordaining. And Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, rules and reigns on high. Every rival power is under his feet. And so we do not need to fear. The one in us is greater than the one out there. There is no fear. And so believers, brothers and sisters this morning, Whatever you're facing, whatever trials come, you do not need to fear. Whether maligning or slander at work or among relatives or in your neighborhood or things that will come, perhaps death in your family, sickness, we do not need to fear because God is with us. He died and has brought us to God. He's now victorious, ruling and reigning, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? So where is your hope this morning? You don't have to fear who becomes president. 
You don't have to fear who gets on whatever courtrooms, Supreme Court justices. You don't have to fear if we find a vaccine or not. Because God sits in the heavens and he's in control. He is God. And this text is not mainly about go and do, but this is a text about rest in these realities. Rest in our suffering and victorious Savior. Be in awe. Do you see how much he loves you? How much he cares for you? How he died for you once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you might be brought to God, so that you don't have to fear. You can come to Jesus. He's not angry and frustrated, saying, why'd you do that again? What's his heart? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, because I'm gentle and lowly, tender. Do you see how Jesus took your wrath Oh, that we would see with fresh eyes the wonder and the awe that it is that Jesus is for us and we don't have to fear whatever may come. I don't worry about my children growing up in this world because if they have Christ, they have decisive victory with him. Do you pray that way for your children and grandchildren? That their roots would go deep in Christ. Second thing, we don't have to fear. Noah was one man willing to stand against an entire generation of wickedness and corruption, and yet God preserved him, and God will likewise preserve all of his children. And not only does God preserve us, imagine the ark. There were some who were throwing rocks, cursing Noah as the rains began to fall. And there were others who were crying out, Noah, let me in. But they weren't ultimately trusting in Jesus. And so Noah couldn't let any of them in. They weren't trusting in Christ. Only eight people were saved in a worldwide flood. Peter points to this as a complete historical reality. And now, with a world in need, we have an opportunity to show them Jesus, to give a defense for the hope that lies within us so that though they might scorn and throw rocks, figurative, metaphorical rocks, perhaps some might say, Noah, let me in. Tell me the hope that lies within you. And we, as God's people, have an opportunity to minister this good news that Jesus is victorious. He rules and reigns. It's finished. He's won. And we can rest in that reality. And the final thing I want to mention is that you do not need to fear demonic powers. I know, because we've prayed for them, that here in this church there are some who have dabbled in the occult, in witches and spells and calling upon dark demonic powers. Perhaps you're watching from home and this characterizes you or some of your family or your relatives or you have parents and grandparents that were engaged in cults and other wicked practices. Perhaps generations of evil are in your immediate past. And what this passage tells us this morning is that every rival 
power. I don't care how strong, how dark, how demonic they have been subjected under the feet of Jesus Christ. The one in us is greater than the one out there. If you're plagued with self-harm or nightmares or unusually fierce anxiety and fear, you can look to our Savior who has purchased our victory decisively. He is victorious. He sits in the heavens and he delivers all of his people. What does Jesus say about his sheep? That no one can snatch them out of my hand. Once Jesus has his grip on you, no one can snatch you out. And for those who have not yet turned to Jesus, who are still dabbling in the occult, thinking that it's not a big deal. You can call upon the name of Jesus and be freed from every rival power. You do not have to live in bondage to Satan and to sin and to any demonic power. And as God's people, we can minister to those who are experiencing such things. We don't have to be in fear. If a deep voice speaks out, we can declare the name of Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has subjected every rival power under his feet. This morning, turn away from the occult and turn to Jesus. Do not neglect his voice as he calls out to you right now and says, come, Come and find hope and salvation. I have died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you might know God. And for all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, we can, with fresh waves of awe and delight in him, we can say these words, now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Why? Because whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious, victorious freedom that we have because we're hidden with Christ, that we've died with him. We've risen again with him to rule and reign with Christ forever, and we can rest in this victorious, suffering, and ascended Savior. We thank you. Well, we love you. Help us to declare your praise with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And for those who don't know you, oh, that they would turn and find salvation at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.